So how is it that we have, say, 30 Sahabi who are qualified Muftis, but there's 124,000 of them? Yet today, yesterday I wasn't a Muslim, today I converted to Islam, alhamdulillah, tomorrow I'm giving you fatwas. Right? Because, as you know, we have that ubiquitous universal sheikh, Sheikh Google. So why am I doing it this way, rather than all the kind of detailed, what is the definition of taqlid, and da, 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 those are really important. Where does it apply, where doesn't it apply, these are important. But I want us to understand the, the haqqaiq, or the haqqiq, the reality of religious knowledge and qualifications. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallama wa barak ala sayyidina wa habibina wa nabiyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Ashadu an la ilaha illallahu wahduhu la sharika lah wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluhu amma ba'd Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah May Allah bless you all to come and attend this particular seminar especially on a hot day such as this but we're uh, blessed not only to be in a masjid, but to be in a very cool masjid. Uh, over the last few uh, weeks or months, I've been in a few mosques in the UK, uh, whereby it was kind of like, like 10 times hotter in the masjid than it was actually outside. Uh, 10, 20 years ago, they had a fantastic AC system and whatever, whatever. Uh, the same old story, four or five years down the line, it breaks down and it's unfixable. Uh, that could be a story for the Ummah, but Alhamdulillah, Allah has something really good for us in, in, in store. Okay, um, so the last time I did uh, a seminar on taqlid and madhabs, Dr. Salim had no white hair in his beard. <laughs> this is the honest truth. Not a single white hair, not even with a magnifying glass. But mashallah. Alhamdulillah. So it's been quite a while. And I'm going to make a confession. You heard uh, Maulana Farooq say that uh, his own personal experience when he was in college, some people came and why aren't you raising your hands uh, extra? Everyone, everyone raises their hands in the beginning, Allahu Akbar. But before you go down in ruku, in bowing, when you come up from the ruku bowing, why aren't you raising your hands? Uh, there's a hadith in Bukhari. Here's this book, Sifat al-Salat al-Nabi, by the late Sheikh al-Albani. And uh, Maulana Farooq didn't say these words, but what he was trying to say was uh, a lot of problems were caused uh, because of this not just in his college, all over the place, and not just in the UK, all over the place. So here's my confession. Um, I was instrumental in that back, <laughs> back in the late 80s. So by 1988, 89, uh, I, uh, uh, myself and a group of people, we came across such scholars, such as the late Sheikh Al-Albani. Uh, and by 1989, we felt it a very good idea that this book of his, which was in its 15th reprint in the, Arabic, in the Arab world, we should translate this into English 
and publish it. Uh, this is nothing to do with oil money from anywhere. All of this from the 80s, from 1984 up until 1995, when that group of brothers, including myself, were together as a group, uh, it was all from our own pockets. All from our own pockets. Even if we believe taking money from any Muslim is halal, whether it's a country, a government, individuals, uh, organizations, sorry, we never took it. We thought, we've seen too many elders, they get their hands tied when they get money. We see some beautiful uh, ulama who, they don't have any money, and they say, you know what, just do it out of your pockets with, with the knee of Allah, and Allah will unfold things. And we thought, as young people then, 18, 19, 20 years old at that time in, in the mid-80s, you know what, that's probably what we want to be doing. And when you're young as well, you don't like this idea of the establishment tying your hands. You want to be young and free and, you know, to, to change the world. Anyway, so yeah, I was instrumental in translating, getting that book translated. Although, uh, if Molana Farouk is here, I have no idea who that individual was or whatever. Did I send him? No, no, no. <laughs> the reason why I would say that is because uh, even with that mindset, I was clear that all these ways of praying are fine. There might be some actions in the prayer better than others, but all of those ways are valid. And I had some other goal in mind, some other things needed to be changed uh, other than the, uh, other than the uh, prayer. But most of the brothers and the few sisters that were around, they were prayer prayer. Why aren't you following the sunnah? And sometimes I would actually have to get a reasonably knowledgeable Hanfi brother and say, why are you quiet? Why don't you tell them that actually we are following the sunnah? Because Ibn Mas'ud says this is the prayer of the Prophet Hadith in Tirmidhi. Imam Tirmidhi says the hadith is, I can't remember, Hassan or Sahih. And most of the Huffar, the Hadith masters, consider that this narration about Ibn Mas'ud saying, I'm going to teach you the prayer of the Prophet So Ibn Mas'ud is not just an Sahabi, but he's one of the greatest scholars of the Sahaba. Okay, if you, if you put the, uh, the, the, the ten greatest Sahaba, the scholars of the Sahaba, Ibn Mas'ud will come in the first five or six. Okay, definitely he'll come within the uh, uh, top seven. Okay, and he's one of the earliest converts. So when he stands in the masjid behind the Prophet, unlike some young Sahaba who are quite naturally at the back, Ibn Masood is somewhere in, in the first beginning lines. So you, if you ever want to see who had a, the view. So Ibn Masood, he prays the prayer. And he prays the prayer exactly like, now he's not a Hanafi obviously, but he prays the prayer exactly like, or more or less like Hanafis will pray today, only raising his hands once in the whole prayer, at the beginning, the takbiratul ihram, the, the beginning takbir, Allahu Akbar. And he said, this is how I saw the process of praying. Wow. But uh, the person who said to Mawlana Farooq, the hadith is in Bukhari, the hadith of Ibn Umar, that uh, this is how the Prophet prayed, and he mentioned that the Prophet raised his hands at the beginning, then coming uh, before Ruku, and then coming up from the Ruku. That's there. So then that brings us to an issue. Oh, hold on a minute, what's going on? Ibn Masood 
describing the Prophet's prayer, Ibn Umar describing the Prophet's prayer. Maybe one is right, maybe one is wrong. Maybe one described what he saw the process of doing one time, and maybe the other one described the process of doing another time. Maybe the one described what the process of did later, which cancelled the one who saw some, the process I'm doing earlier. What's the answer? Who knows? The answer is, who knows? Wallahu a'lam. What we know is two different descriptions, in this case, of the prayer. So what is a layperson, a non-scholar? Leave alone the, the seasoned alim. That you may gain a deep understanding of the religion. Leave those type of um, scholars. What about the rest of us? I mean, who has Sahil, I mean, until modern times, who had Sahil Bukhari at home? Okay, until modern print in the Muslim world. Question, when did the printing press who started the printing press? Printing. Where? In what country did it start? All right, what continent? It started in China. Oh, could have started in China. I'm talking about the modern printing press. As a, but you're right. They, they had a form of printing, but it wasn't the modern one. Okay. So, oh, it could have been. Most things you'll find is from Pakistan, but not this particular thing. Alhamdulillah. Um, uh, excuse to the Gujaratis. Um, I'm neither Pakistani or, or Gujarati. <laughs> Beirut, okay, so that you might think in the, the Muslim world. Okay, so in 1450, about 1450, a German called Gutenberg started pr the printing press in Europe. And within 50 years of the printing press, the mechanical printing press, Britain, uh, Europe started printing thousands and thousands of books on all sorts of things. And the reading level increased and book reading became... But this invention, for one reason or the other, didn't come, didn't come to the Muslim world until the late 1800s, three and a half centuries later. There's a, a few reasons for this, but we needn't get into that. And so at that time, if you wanted a book in the Muslim world, say I'm an alim and now I'm studying, give me a Hanafi text, basic Hanafi text that you study in fiqh. Nur al-Ida. I'm going to start, go to the mosque and study Nurul Ida, this basic text on Hanafi uh, law or fiqh, with my sheikh, with my imam. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is one of two things. I need the book. Right? You can't go down to foils or waterstones. There's no such thing. We don't have the printing press like Europe, so we do it the old way. I go to a scribe, a katib, whose job is to just write books out and then sell them. And he will write me a book, Nur al-Ida, I will pay him some decent wage. And I'll take my little book, bound between two leathers and whatever, probably gonna be quite thick, even though it's a small book. And the sheikh will, I will listen to the sheikh, read, the, read his book and explain it. He may not even read a book, he may have memorized the text. Whether he reads his book or says it from memory, I will just make sure that my version of the book I will correct any errors because the scribe, he might have had a big biryani, right? And he's doing the second page and he's a bit tired and one little word there gets changed or whatever. So I'm going to check my script with his. Not only that, the sheikh is going to say some very important words and explanations, some wisdoms. I'm going to write that on the margins, the atraf, okay? 
and that will be my notes. And by that way, I would have done two or three things by the end of the, the month or the two months or the 10 months that it would have taken me to study this book. One, I would have studied it with a person who studied it from a person who studied it from a person all the way back to the author of the book himself. The imam who wrote the book. So there's, a broke, there's an unbroken chain or sanad. And that person would have studied, not that book because he wrote that book, but he would have studied fiqh from his teacher, who studied from his teacher, from his teacher, all the way back to maybe Abu Yusuf, who took it from Abu Hanifa, maybe from Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani, who took it from Abu Hanifa, someone like that. Or maybe from Tahawi, from his teachers, from uh, Shaybani or Abu Yusuf, something like this. Rahimahumullah. So I would be part of a chain that goes, and that would always obviously go back to the Prophet's lesson. Two, I would have corrected my text. So there are, the printing error is weeded out. So the authentic version is there. And three, I would have learnt the explanation of these words. That's what scholars would have done, and students on that path would have done something like that. The rest of us, ah, uh, Ibn Masood, no raising hands, no Rafayadain. Ibn Umar, Rafayadain. You know what? I, I can't look into Bukhari. What is Tirmidhi? Is that, a, is that the name of a Bidiyani? Is that the name of a person? What is it? I don't know what this Tirmidhi thing is. Uh, I can't look into these books anyway. Where am I going to find them? Where is this hadith? Okay. And even if I got it, uh, look at the language of the hadith. This is classical. This is classical. And I'll tell you how it's like. Anyone tries to read Shakespeare, Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, okay? Uh, 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 late 1500s, Elizabethan era. Really difficult. But he speaks, he's speaking English. But it's difficult because it's not the English we speak anymore. <coughs> if anyone who speaks Urdu here, like a, like a UP person or a Karachiite with really high class Urdu, okay? And you get them to read the early writings of Shah Waliullah Dihlawi in Urdu. When Urdu were just starting, they wouldn't be able to understand half of it. Why? Because the Urdu of today, even the first class Urdu, even the Urdu of, um, who is the famous Pakistani uh, poet stroke defender of Islam? Allama Iqbal, Rahmatullah Even his Urdu is very, very different than the Urdu of when Urdu just started in the time of Shawalillah, Urdu at the time of Shawalillah had much more Persian words than Hindi Sanskrit words. And it had much more Arabic words. And so it's really difficult. So Shawalillah, he started writing in Urdu at that time, as well as Arabic, as well as Persian. But the Urdu that he wrote is like Shakespeare in Urdu. It's like, it doesn't matter what type way you turn the page, it just doesn't make sense. The Arabic of the Prophet is very much like Shakespearean, Waliullah and Urdu. It's not, we just don't use it anymore. So even if I had Bukhari or whatever, there probably are words and things in there we just don't use, we don't understand. It needs to be explained. So what does a layperson do? He must, she must follow Allah and the Rasul. Every Muslim must, have, uh, must do that. Every Muslim must have a, an aqidah, a belief that Allah and His Rasul are to be obeyed. 
That is the that is one of the basic meanings of La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah Now, this article, Taqlid and Madhabs, the good, the bad, and the ugly, part one of two, and then the second part is there as well. It's very detailed. The first part has about 25 points with, you know, with proofs and references and whatever, and the next part has another 25 points. Uh, please, whoever is really interested in this issue, uh, please read the article. But today, I don't want to go into all of that heavy stuff. I just want to keep it light in concepts. And I'm so glad, glad that Mulana Farooq started with that anecdote. Because really, that's the crux of the matter. How do I know that this Sifat al-Salat, it was an English translation from an Arabic, how do I know that? Who is this person? Is he a scholar? Is he not a scholar? Did the translator translate it correctly? Did they not? Is it done by... Uh, the, uh, the secret service, is it not? I don't know. So, if someone says, you know what, my sheikh hasn't told me about this, that isn't a wrong answer. That is natural. That is natural. Because there is an element about human life, whether it's religious life, medical life, any life, there's an, there is an element about human life that every human being agrees on. Which is this, that some areas of life require high specialization, require someone to be qualified in a serious way. Obvious examples are doctors. There's a difference between putting a plaster on your son or daughter because they fell down and grazed their knee in the playground and putting a bit of plaster on that. And and doing an open heart surgery, a triple bypass. Clearly, one requires very little qualification, just some common sense where you stick the plaster after cleaning the wound, common knowledge. And the other one requires not even your average doctor or GP can do a triple bypass. So even amongst doctors, there are degrees of specialization. <coughs> amongst the ulama, they are the specialists. Of religion. How do we know this? The Prophet said uh, in an authentic hadith, Al Ulama Waratatul Anbiya. So, uh, along with the, uh, the verses that uh, Mawlana Farooq pointed us to in, the, in his introduction, Jazahmullah uh, Khairan, that tell us the importance of the scholars, okay, and how, in one sense, they are part of the Ulul Amr, those in authority, those in authority in terms of knowledge, okay. And it would really be nice if the Umara, the political leaders, did actually listen to the religious leaders, and we might actually be somewhere. But anyway, another place, another time. The ulama, the Prophet said, Waratatul Anbiya, they are the inheritors of the prophets. Question Roughly, how many Sahaba were there in the time of the Prophet? Roughly, yes, young, young man. 15,000, whoa, that's a good, good number. Okay, what do we have here? Someone has been studying. <laughs> MashaAllah, Allah bless you both of you, alhamdulillah. So yeah, uh, we have about 15,000 Sahabi's biographies recorded. We definitely know their names, probably the names of their fathers and Half of them we know where they died, about 15,000. Probably 12,000 is closer, Ibn Hajar. 
but so let's say 15,000. But actually, there were between 100 on, on the Hajjatul Wida, the final Hajj, through looking at all the evidences and whatever, many Hadith scholars, like As-Sakhawi in the Fatul Mughith, he says there was between 123,000 and 124,000 Sahabi. 124,000. That's a lot, right? Those are people who are Muslims who saw the Prophet even if it was for one second, let alone one week, one year, one decade. 124,000. Okay. Out of the 124,000 in the time of the Prophet and even though this word isn't used at that time, how many were muftis? How many sahabi could give fatwas? No, before that. How many sahaba spoke Arabic out of the 124,000? Doesn't matter what level of Arabic. But how many spoke Arabic? 100,000. 100,000. Any other guess? Could we probably say probably all? Yeah, probably all. At some level, even if they weren't all Arabs and whatever, but at some point they would have kind of picked up something. So they all speak Arabic. They're all Muslims. They all believe in Quran. They all so on and so forth. How many of them were muftis? Meaning that when you have an issue, what does the Quran say? The Quran says in two places, Fas alu ahla dhikri in kuntum la ta'alamun. Ask the people of knowledge. If you do not know. When you do not know, ask. Ask who? Not any lalupanju, not anybody. The qualified scholar. The qualified scholar. Just like you wouldn't ask any Tom, Dick or Harry about some real serious medical illness. You'd ask what, who you believe to be a qualified doctor or a physician. So on and so forth. Out of those 124,000, in the time of the process, how many were muftis? Have a guess. 15,000? You'd think that's a good number, 15,000. Before you answer, young man, how is it that Kensington Garden community has sent two young mujahids to answer all their questions for them? <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm really okay. Alhamdulillah. The younger, the better. Alhamdulillah. But it is an odd scenario, isn't it? The youngest of the jama'ah are answering confidently and quite often correctly or near correctly all the questions. Wow, subhanAllah, you, you've been teaching him. <laughs> subhanAllah. Okay, it's not four, but it's almost like four. There were probably no more, give or take, so this is not a precise number. There were probably around about 25 to 30 people qualified from the Sahaba who could give fatwas out of 124,000 people. This is not made up. No, no scholar who has researched this, even mildly, will differ with these. They might differ with their number exactly, but we have these scholars and quite often their fatwas, many of their fatwas recorded still. They might be part of larger collections, but we, we know this. We know this by uh, 400 years after the process and through the works of Ibn Hazm. We know this by another scholar that Mawlana Farooq's uh, slides mentioned, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawzi or Ibn, Ibn al-Qayyim in his I'lam uh, al-Muaqeen. We know this, and we know this from other texts. So how is it 
that we have, say, 30 Sahabi who are qualified Muftis, but there's 124,000 of them. Yet today, yesterday I wasn't a Muslim, today I converted to Islam, alhamdulillah, tomorrow I'm giving you fatwas. Because, as you know, we have that ubiquitous universal sheikh, Sheikh Google. So why am I doing it this way, rather than all the kind of detailed, what is the definition of taqlid, and da, 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 those are really important. Where does it apply, where doesn't it apply, these are important, but I want us to understand the, the haqqaiq or the haqqiq, the reality of religious knowledge and qualifications. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in that verse that Mawlana Farooq uh, explained, لِيَتَفَكَّهُ فِي الدِّينِ in Surah Tawbah, he, when he said, we're talking about not just learning, because tafaqquh and ta'aleem is slightly different in, the, in, in religious language. Learning is, probably most of us have done some level of religious learning. Tafaqquh, very few people have gone deep into it. Only the ulama in, in this masjid have probably done that, and maybe a few tulab al-ilm are beginning to do that. They've got their foot on the first, second, third rung of, of a ladder that probably has a hundred steps. So what did the Sahaba do, who were not these 30 muftis? When they didn't know someone, something of religion, normally they don't need any questions. They know how to pray, they know how to fast, they know they've got 10 camels, and 20 sheep, they know how much zakat to give, they know when Ramadan is, they know how to fast in Ramadan, Generally, they know all this stuff, but sometimes a new thing will, will come up. Oh, their, uh, their, their grandmothers died, and she has no husband, she has no this, no that. So who inherits? Oh, this is not a common knowledge amongst Muslims, but there is somewhere out there in the hadith or in the ayah a, an answer. But very few people know that, but the muftis will know it. So they would go on these kind of questions to the mufti. And the mufti from the Sahabi will say, yes, she ha- she, uh, you inherit from her one-sixth, one-quarter, one-third, or whatever the number would be. And they would go off and practice this. Would the mufti, would the mufti from the ha- Sahabi, uh, Sahaba say, well, you see, there is a verse in the Qur'an, in Surah Nisa, verse 112, and it says, no, they would just say, no inheritance, or yes, inheritance, one-third, two-third, bismillah. Next question, please. And you'd go away and practice. Why? Because the Quran doesn't say, ask the people of knowledge for evidence when you don't know. It just says, ask them when you don't know. Asking. And why would you ask someone in something very important? Because you, why would you go to a particular person as a doctor to uh, get your medical question answered? Because what do you, what, what do you have in him? You have trust, absolutely trust. You have trust that he, or it could be she, is qualified in this particular area of life. You have trust. If it's someone who is a scholar, but no one knows, only he and some other person knows he's a scholar, you, not being disrespectful, you wouldn't ask him, because you're not clear, is he a scholar or not? Even though he is, but you don't know that nobody in the community knows this. So there isn't any trust. 
until you learn from someone whom you trust that, yes, this man is qualified, then you have trust. That concept of trust in Islam is given, fortunately and unfortunately, the name of taqlid. Taqlid. Taqlid, as an Arabic word, just means to follow. It means, taqlid means, in, in the class, classical Arabic language, classical Quran language, when you get like a camel or a horse, then on the horse you put blinkers on the horse to narrow its vision so that it doesn't get distracted by what's going on there so it, you know it can just walk straight. And then you put a, uh, a noose, uh, you put a rope around the neck of the horse and you pull it with you. So I'm walking here, now the horse is walking with me, or the donkey, or the whatever else. That process is called taqlid. The, the animal is following me. He is the muqallid, it is the muqallid, and I am the muqallid. It is the follower, and I am the one followed. Leave it alone. So that's where the Arabic word comes from, taqlid. But very early on in Islam, the scholars used that Arabic word and gave it a religious meaning. Taqlid has two religious meanings. I mean, it has more, but for our discussion, it's just worth knowing there has just two religious meanings. And it doesn't matter if someone says, I disagree here. They really have no uh, grounds to disagree because this is just agreed upon through the classical Arabic language. It's just known. Just like it's known that no is the opposite of yes. If someone says, well, I disagree, so barakallah fikum, you know, you know, you maybe need to get checked up in your head, right? Or maybe you're not an English speaker. Maybe you're, you know, you speak um, Gujarati and, you know, you don't know that no is the opposite of yes. Bismillah, one of, one of the two. But whatever it is, your case, head case or non-language case, you have no authority to speak in this matter. Just the case. So taqlid meant two things. Following, so it means following. It either meant bad following, so the Qur'an will speak about when you, can't, when you tell them, follow Allah and the Messenger, they say, we rather follow the way of our forefathers. What? Even though the forefathers had no knowledge or were on misguidance? There are many verses like this in the Qur'an. The Muslims were going to the Quraysh, the non-Muslims of the Quraysh or the non-Muslims in, in Medina, and they were saying, follow Islam, follow revelation, follow haq, follow the truth, follow the light. And they say, no. I don't want to do any of that. I'm happy following my clan, my tribe, my culture, my forefathers. Allah condemns that type of following. And generally we use the word taqlid a'ma, blind following. Because you're following it, going against haq, truth. Then there is another type of following, which is the following where this discussion is about. Where Allah simply says to the non-scholars, First Alu Ahlu Dhikri in Kuntum La Ta'lamun, Surah Anbiya. Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. Hadith in the Sunan of Abu Dawood, but there is Fihi Nadr, there is some kind of debate amongst the Hadith masters. Is it sound, authentic, or is it mildly weak? But the meaning is correct. The cure for ignorance is to ask. The Prophet said, 
in the hadith in Abu Dawud, the cure for ignorance is to ask. The context of that was in a battle, someone got wounded at the time of the process and someone got wounded on their head. It was a really bad head wound. Then he needed to have a full bath, a ghusl. This man with the head wound, that night, he's injured, but for some reason he needed a, he needed a ghusl, a full bath. But he, he felt that if I put water on my head, I'll probably make my wound worse. So he asked some people who weren't the scholars of the Sahaba. Some kept quiet, so we don't know. We, but one of them decided to answer and said, no, no, you have to put water all over your head. So he did. And he died. The Prophet came later, a few minutes, a few hours, I'm not quite sure. Asked what had happened. They told him the situation. And he said, you have killed him. You have killed him. Meaning through your false fatwa, you have killed him. You have killed him. Why didn't you ask when you did not know? For indeed the cure of ignorance is in the asking. Early on, Al-Ghazali and other scholars, even before Al-Ghazali, we have this issue of um, responsibility from a hadith of the Prophet on this issue. The Prophet said, if there is a qualified doctor, so I'm paraphrasing the hadith, this is not exactly what the hadith is saying, but bil uh, If there is a qualified doctor and he follows all the rules and his patient dies, no demand, no responsibility. He doesn't have to pay the blood money. He's not guilty of any crime, anything like that. It's just, please, I'm really sorry that, you know, died and he'll probably, doctor will think better next time he does that. But he's qualified and he followed the right way, but bad consequence. But the hadith talks about the, the, the one who is not qualified and does what he does and the person dies, he is guilty of, guilty of murder. The difference is not in the ending. The difference is in this specialized field, when you did something, did you do it as a qualified person or not? Same thing with you killed him, you killed him. You weren't a qualified mufti. You should have waited. Or at least you should have just kept quiet and let him do whatever he wants to and take his own life in his hands. So look, this is taqlid. And it doesn't matter if we don't call it that. We can call it anything. We can call it rainbow. Okay? We can call it biryani. There's something about hunger at the moment. Okay? But changing the name doesn't change the reality. That in Islam, a non-scholar like us, when we don't know a religious issue, we go and ask the one who we think, reasonably think, is qualified to tell us an answer. Normally that reasonable person happens to be the imam of the imams of the mosque. Generally, that's the way it goes. I mean, you don't go down Walthamstow Market or Ilford High Street and just ask your question and just wait for any person. Normally, you think, no, they must, they must have some qualification from some Darulum, from some Islamic university or something like this. And that is the issue. Now, what happens in the 80s, uh, not, this is before the 80s, but I'm not going to go into big history. When modern modernity came along in the Muslim world, 
some Muslims, and we're not looking into their intentions now, some Muslims, they felt we need to revive Islam. It's all gone stagnant. This is why we used to be up, now we're down. We didn't have the printing press 300 years later. We didn't have this 300 years, 500 years later. We don't have this. Look at the French, look at, the Brit, uh, the, uh, look at Britain, look at France, look at Europe. And we saw their technological sophistication, okay, and their modern revolutions, you know, in, in, especially in times of ideas and science and ways to govern uh, countries politically and economically. And we said, we want that. And we said, what went wrong? And part of the answer was, we feel, not everyone said this, we feel that these scholars sitting in the mosque with their dusty books and grandma's inheritance and madhabs and you have to study this and you have to study that and then 10 years later you're qualified. At the moment, our countries are being colonized and they're just sitting in mosques studying these big books. Some Muslims who had good intentions, but maybe not wisdom, said, look, we need to change all of this. We need to make our Islam and our religious knowledge more modern. And part of that was they saw that, you know what, Muslims, just blind following. Sheikh says, do this, do this. A man with a beard who's not a Sheikh says, do this, they do that. Okay, as one of the, one of the scholars of that time said, the alim says, this is halal. The lay, the lay person, the Muslim says, bismillah, you know, alhamdulillah. The alim says this is haram, the lay person says alhamdulillah, bismillah. The person who comes along, he's not an alim, but he has a beard and he says this is halal, they say alhamdulillah, bismillah. Because it's all just following, following, and they don't, they've lost the ability of who is to be followed, who is not to be followed, not even using the brain there. This is what some of these Muslims thought. So we need to get away with this taqlid. And they found in the Quran, Look, Allah says, when it comes to, when, you, uh, when, when, uh, when it is said, follow Allah and the Messenger, they say, no, we would rather follow our forefathers. So here is his Hanafi, here is his Shafi, here is his Maliki. Why is he Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki? Well, I lived in, uh, from the 4th century of, uh, uh, of Islam, because before the 4th century, Hanafism wasn't established in, in, in India. But by the 4th century of Islam, Hanafi, the Hanafi Madhab was more or less the dominant Madhab of the Indian subcontinent. The Maliki Madhab was the dominant Madhab of West Africa. The Shafi'i Madhab was the dominant Madhab of uh, uh, Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and places like that, and, and in Egypt as well. Uh, and the Hanbalis just moved around here and there. So when you ask this Hanafi, why are you Hanafi? Oh, my, my dad was Hanafi, my dad's dad was Hanafi, everybody in our town is Hanafi, I've never left my town. It's not like I can get on a train or a plane. Khalas, you're born in that place, you're going to die in that place, right? Someone who lived in some town in Bombay, right, in the 15th century, had no aspiration. Oh, I want to go and visit the world. Maybe some scholars traveled the world, but most human beings, including in this country. Khalas, you just stayed in your town. Where else are you going to go? Everybody, all of your relatives here, your work is here. There's no, there's no concept of even traveling in that sense. So these people said, look, see, these are doing what... They're doing exactly what the Quran told them not to do. When it is said, come to Allah and the Rasul. And I'm telling them, there's a hadith in Bukhari. Ibn Umar said, I saw the Prophet raising his hands. And these Hanafis, they're just following their forefathers. And they used that verse or those verses to destroy the permissible type of taqlid. Of course, 
the traditional scholars re replied to them. But for one reason or the other, the voice of the traditional Islam wasn't as strong as the voice of modern Islam. Just like today, the voice of the extremist Muslim is not like the voice of the non-extremist Muslims. The voice of the extremist Muslims is always going to get media attention. It's going to be high profile. Other than that, voice is like, who cares? Doesn't sell papers, doesn't sell news. Right? And that is the issue today. And what happens is, I don't know if Maulana Farouk mentioned the word Salafi or not, but he mentioned Sheikh Al-Albani, so I'll, I'll take it a step further. The, the Salafi Dawah, and I want you to think of it just as, not a positive or negative, just as a term. Whatever reason it is called Salafi, okay? The Salafi Dawah from the 1880s up until now, but in the UK from the 1970s, the uh, year 1970s, but by 1980, it's roll up your sleeves. You have second generation Muslims born here that are on this dower. They unfortunately confused this and they started using verses, hadiths. They had a good thing. Like so many bid'ahs, so many wrong things have been mixed up with the right thing. So much Muslim culture has taken over sunnah, has has become more important than following the sunnah. So they had a good idea, but their process of sorting out the good from the bad was itself defective. And so they were always going to be defective, even though they may have been well intended. So the question then became, for many people here who are at university, who go to college, maybe not for elders like us, unless we were in college and university in this country, is that it is a big issue it does become a question, do I need to follow a madhab, a Sunni madhab, Hanafi, Shafi, Hanbali, Maliki, or is it, but isn't the Quran and the Sunnah clear? Why did Allah send the Prophet Did he send him so that the Prophet said, you know what, uh, 250 years after me will be a man called Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi, Ahmed. You have to follow them. No, the, the, even the, the simple Muslim mind will think, no, that's not what the Prophet came for. He didn't come to tell us to follow somebody else. So maybe we shouldn't be following madhabs. Maybe these brothers are right. We should be just going directly to Quran and Hadith. And doesn't the Quran itself say that we made the Quran easy? Is there nobody who will take admonition? And didn't the Prophet explain the Quran? And generally explanations are simpler than the thing that is being explained. And wasn't the Prophet sent to the whole of mankind? Not just to the scholars, but everybody. Men, women, intellectual people, farmers, candlestick makers and bakers. So why do we need all of this? And it then confuses people. And they confuse two basic things that the Quran speaks about. And they think it's either this or that. So when I was growing up, it was told to me by my Hanafi teachers, it's haram for you to read the Quran, uh, you know, in translation. I read it in Arabic. Who knows what, what am I reading? But it's haram for you to try to understand it. On day one, I thought, no problem, Maulana said so. I think by day four, when I spoke to my dad, and he didn't give me any answer, he just kept silent, but he kind of, uh, rahimullah, he just kind of made a face like that. On day four, I thought, this is odd. How can it be a book of guidance? And I don't know what it's saying. I go back to my Maulana. I pluck up enough courage to ask him, 
got Maulana, Book of Guidance. And Alhamdulillah, they don't do this anymore. And he did it with love. But I got a right whack on the head. <laughs> I got a right whack on the head. Right? So basically, I mean, he didn't tell me to shut up, but that was basically it. Jup. Right? I mean, you know, we thought that was an important Islamic word. Jup. Right? Be quiet. Right? Khamush. Must be there in the Quran somewhere. But I... But that dilemma that someone like me had is really the dilemma. But if the Quran and the Hadith by extension, the Sunnah, is meant to be guidance for everybody, why is it that we're following these people? Because, and this is where I just want to end my talk, and then get to the practical thing with uh, Mufti Abdurrahman on Madhabs, and then we can just have Q&A. And all of the details with the scholarly proofs and the uh, 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 first-hand references are in these uh, part one, part two. Okay, for anyone who wants to read, inshallah. That's because we must be clear the Quran has two, for this discussion, the Quran has two levels of communication. On the one hand, the majority of its message, the majority of its message, let's say there are about how many verses in the Quran, how many ayat in the Quran? 6,606. <laughs> Okay, so let's leave the, the sixes, all, but yeah, it's about six and a half thousand. You're right, 6,600, let's say. Maybe not 66 as well, and then we're getting dangerous to the mark of the beast and whatever. But yeah, barakallah fikum. So I will not ask anybody any more questions. I will just ask these two young brothers <laughs> the questions, inshallah, and then you'll have to tell me your names after as well. May Allah bless you. No, Allah bless you, and this is a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm not going to go in how a little bit shameful it is, but I'm going to focus on the positive. This is a good thing. That two young people have the respect, the adab, and the confidence to answer. And between them, they've got more or less all the answers right. And these aren't common knowledge questions. How many prayers do we pray in a day? What month do we fast? No, these are a little bit detailed. And yet, here are two young men okay, uh, who are uh, able, mashallah. And that credit goes to... Uh, perhaps their parents, bi'idhnillah, their, 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 their teachers and, and the masjid community, inshallah ta'ala. So six and a half thousand verses. Out of those six and a half thousand verses, only 500 are what they call ahkam, do's and don'ts. Halal and haram, fiqh questions. Six thousand verses are nothing to do with halal and haram in Islam. Halal and haram in Islam is that little. It seems a lot. Because we, sheikhs and maulanas, go around telling you everything is haram. Okay? But actually, just this small number. 6,000 verses of the Quran is nothing to do with that. So what they to do with? They are to do with Allah. Who He is. How the heart can be drawn close to Him. How the heart can fall in love with Him. Why the heart should rely upon Him. What He prepares for the believers in the hereafter. What He prepares for the disbelievers in the hereafter. How did He help His awliya? Uh, his Sahaba, his, his, his saints and the, and, the, and the Salihun, the righteous Muslims in this life, in, the, in this world, and how he destroyed others. Ethics. 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 Cheating is haram. Stealing is haram. Making false claims on an insurance thing is haram. Claiming a false claim with DHS is haram. Don't go to hajj on haram money. T 
taking more than my share in inheritance and my sister gets less than her haq or my younger brother gets less than his haq, haram. Speaking politely to people, important. All these ethical things, all those things about Allah, Akhirah, Rasul, the righteous people, all the spiritual things, purify your heart, purify your soul. Come to Allah bin Salim with a pure heart. All those social political things, look, you know what, you can have a good economy, you can have good ruler, but if all of you are disobedient, never does Allah change the condition of a people, of a qawm, until they change what is within themselves. Those verses, you don't need any scholars to get the general meaning. Bil Jumla, when any human being, whether in Arabic or English translation or Swahili translation, hears, be kind to parents. They get the message of Allah at some broad level. When they hear, do not lie, every human being gets the message at some level. But when the question comes, when I have a gash on my head, do I have to still pour water over it as part of wudu or ghusl? Or, now that Ramadan has come along, I am asthmatic, can I use a pump inhaler, that blue inhaler thing, during my fasting time? Does it count as food or does it count as non-food? It's not going to be there directly in the Qur'an. There's going to have to be scholars who look at the Qur'an and hadith and say, well, this, 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 this. From there we can conclude halal or haram. But the majority of a Muslim's life, of a human being's life, is going to be with those 6,000 verses. Which is why the Prophet says in the Hadith in Bukhari, بَلِّغُوا anni walaw ayah, Convey from me, even if it's one verse. And the scholars differ. This word ayah, does it mean ayah of the Qur'an, verse of the Qur'an, or does it just mean any jumla mufida, any good piece of wisdom as a, as a, as a, as a sound word? Majority say any piece of word, but some say no, it means ayah. But the point being is, every Muslim here, every Muslim here has a general duty to tell non Muslims the basic message of the Quran. If, and if they can't say it themselves, say it's in, it's in the book, <laughs> it's in the Quran, okay? Here's the Quran or here's a translation. Every Muslim has an obligation for tabligun nas, conveying the texts of the Quran. So let's say I'm not a scholar, uh, and I'm not, uh, and I don't know tafsir. I don't know tafsir, Quranic explanation. I don't know tafsir ibn Kathir, tabari, all these things. But what I'm going to do is these young kids, these young Muslims who are just going to start praying, they're 9, 10, 11, I'm going to tell teach them the last 10 surahs of the quran because that's probably what they're going to read in prayer most of the time say maulana sahab can you teach them no i know the 10 i know the last 10 i can and i have a duty therefore to convey the the text the words of allah's revelation in this case to non-muslims it's allah is one there is a hereafter we will be allah wants us to do good by following his guidance keep away from bad 
our deeds will be judged, such and such and such a thing, at the head of those good deeds, after shahadis, the prayer, and then the fasting, and so on and so forth. I can convey that. We all have a duty of But there is this thing called Convey the meaning. I don't know the meanings of For example Can only be done by the scholars Conveying the deeper meanings Deeper meanings in context Can only be done by the scholars But all of us When you confuse the two Then you have probably If I'm to be fair The extreme position that says No you cannot understand the Qur'an unless you're a scholar, it's haram. <coughs> How did this non-Muslim become a Muslim? Seven times out of ten, when you ask non-Muslims how did they convert, they said, we picked up the Qur'an. Sometimes it's communication with, non -Muslims, with Muslims. But they picked up the Qur'an and got what? Did they understand something? Yes, they understood. Allah is one. There is no trinity. There is accountability. From the beginning of human history, Allah sent people of guidance called prophets who taught their people the ways of God. And Allah just says, follow the ways of Allah. And each prophet then becomes the perfect example of how to be a person of Allah, one of the Ahlullah. And the non-Muslim says, yeah, I, I, you know, do not lie, do not this, do not treat animals kindly. Tread carefully on the earth. Do not cause fasad fil ard. Corruption on the earth. Oh, yeah, you know what? I think I can, this way of life seems true. And they become Muslim. Did they... That was a message of the Qur'an they got. Did they consult a scholar? No. Did they need to consult a scholar? No. Because at that level, the basic message of the Qur'an is clear to anyone, even in translation. But the fiqh details, not possible. So... You, none of us need a scholar to know that drinking is haram. We don't need to say, hold on a minute, let me ask Mufti Mangera when he comes. Until then we just sit there like plums, I don't know, can I drink alcohol or not? No, no, no. If we start doing this, it becomes sheikh worship. Because this is not the type of thing that we need to be asking any scholar about. Why? Because the message of Islam about this is very clear. Same thing with praying five times a day. Maybe some of the details are different. Same thing with this, this, this. All of that is generally clear. We don't need scholars. But when it comes to the halal and haram, the Prophet understood from Allah that this is a matter that only a few people are going to understand. And these few scholars will become qualified. Then they will have students who will become qualified. And as the Islamic community grew away from Medina, it had more and more issues. Then when it became an empire with millions of people, it had more and more issues. Now you have even all these non-Arabs have become Muslims and they've got their traditions and their baggage and their history and they're asking all these questions. Is it halal or haram? So by the time of Abu Hanifa, if in the time of uh, Sayyiduna Uthman anhu, let's say, there were about 200 masail, 200 religious issues, let's just say, by the time of Abu Hanifa, there are over two and a half thousand. Okay, if not twenty thousand. And so Allah in each generation gave those type of people who liyatafaqahu fi deen would say, you know what, let's dig in deep. 
so that we can guide people in the light of Allah's revelation, Quran and Sunnah, in terms of is this halal or is this haram? And that's why ending with the Rafayadain issue, raising hands in prayer. Whenever you get an issue that on the one hand there seems to be some proof here to do this, Ibn Masood, don't do Rafayadain. On the other hand, there is this hadith that says, Ibn Umar, do Rafayadain. How do you square the circle? How do you make them fit? Whenever you get something like that, which seems to be, oh, what's going on? That will always be a fiqhi question. But never in the Quran is it, do not lie. And then somewhere, somewhere over there it says, you, you can lie as much as you want. And then you say, oh, what's going on? No, no, it's always going to be clear. It's never going to be, do, do not be kind to your parents. And over there, beat your parents with a stick and a cricket bat. That's never going to happen. Nor is it the other way around, that the parents can beat their kids with a cricket bat or a stick or whatever. That, that's not part of Islam. Um, in fact, that would be prohibited at that level. It's only in fiqh that we have, we need, sorry, we need scholars. And there is a consensus amongst the ulama, which is why as Salafis, even Salafis, at some point they will say, I will ask this big Salafi scholar, Al-Albani, for example, or this big Salafi sheikh, Bin Daz, for example, or this big Salafi alim, Ibn Uthaymin, for example. It's very unlikely most Salafis, Salafis by now will say, you know what, I'll go directly to the Qur'an and Hadith on this fiqh issue and work it out from myself. Because they now realize that their statement saying that 10, 20 years ago was not just misleading and misguidance, but it, it doesn't work because as a non-specialist, you can't do specialized things. Then the only other question that comes, which is not what I'm going to address, Sheikh Abdurrahman, Mufti Abdurrahman is, is these four Sunni madhabs that now remain. We used to have more than four Sunni fiqh schools. They're not schools of thought. They're not schools of thought. So let's use, leave that modernist translation. They're schools of Islamic law or schools of details of Islamic law, schools of fiqh. The details of how to pray. Not, how to, not pray, that's clear. That's not from the details. That's clear message of Islam. But the details of how to pray, the details of how to fast, the details of how to go to hajj. Am I allowed to wear the modern sandals in Hajj? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? Because in the Hajj, the shoes must be like this, must be like that, so on and so forth. We have four schools left. In the, 20, in the 21st century, in the 15th Islamic century, we have four remaining Sunni schools left. And we've had only four for the last 800 years. 800 years ago, we had about six. In the time of Abu Hanifa, we had about 10. But these four became the best codified, the best documented, the best recorded, the best number of students who spread the, uh, the, 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 the body of laws and set up schools and teaching establishments such that everything else got eclipsed. And even out of the four, the Hanbali school is almost eclipsed. So practically, it's really three. And it's only been revived in the last 50 years. The, fourth of the, la the last of the four schools has only been revived in the last 50 years. Otherwise, for about 400 years, it too was on its way out. And maybe 100 years later or 50 years later, we could have said there are three Sunni schools. So the number of four isn't important. 
is just what happened. And it wasn't always four, it was more before. And who knows, 100 years later, it might only be three. It could unlikely be more than four, though. So the question is, I, as a non-scholar, do I have to follow one of these schools in fiqh? And so if I am going to, if I do have to, and then I do have to be Hanafi or Maliki or Shafi, how do I do that? I'll tell you how you don't do it. My goal in life is to be a Hanafi or a Shafi. This is un-Islam. Your goal in, our goal in life is Allah, Jalla Jalaluhu. And there are means to this goal. Some means are beautiful, some means are necessary. But there is no other goal except Allah Jalla Jalaluhu. And it's nothing to be proud of being a Hanafi or a Shafi, but be proud in the right sense of the word of being Muslim attached to the Sunnah of Al Mustafa. Secondly, Hanafis aren't better than Shafis, and Shafis aren't better than Malikis, and Malikis aren't better than Hanafis. Astaghfirullah. Who, who has any knowledge to say who was better faqih? Do you think Abu Hanifa was the greatest faqih? Aina Dalil, where is your proof? Do you think Malik was the greater faqih? Where's your proof? Scholars between themselves have their own idea. But that's fine. When you're at that level, you can decide. But Asalalupanjus, what do you know? What do you Hanafis or you Shafis know about Shafi or Abu Hanifa? Nothing. You know nothing. So why are you even thinking? And had you been born in Malaysia, you'd been Shafi. And then you'd have said, Imam Shafi is Imam al adam so this, is, this is what? This is ta'asub. This is bradri. This is bigotry. But rather, these fiqh schools are a necessary means to the goal. Because without them, we don't know the halal and haram clearly. And if we do, we're getting it from someone who we don't know. Is he qualified or not? And we're putting him between us and Allah. And that is misguidance. So I will tell you for sure, Definitely can't be following the schools with this mentality. And I will, and I will uh, give you my own antidote. In this country, and I know it's going to be painful, but I want to make it absolutely clear. In this country, and there might be some justification, but not entire justification. Especially when young men like me were going around saying, no madhabs, no this, no that, rafayadain, amin, blah, 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 we don't have to... I'm, I'm sure some people reacted, I get that. One, one, rea one action brings about a very strong reaction. But now, we need to be clear, okay, that it's not about being Hanafi. There are people in this area, in this area, South Ilford area, who, when it comes to a convert, the first thing they want to do is make that convert a Hanafi. Astaghfirullah, just make him a muttaqi upon the sunnah attached to the ulama, and hopefully within a month or two, half a year or something, this convert will either gel with his local community and follow whatever school they're following, or inshallah ta'ala will be guided to choosing uh, a school. Many converts choose the Maliki school because in Muslim Europe, Spain, the Maliki madhab was always dominant and they want to revive that. And it's something to do with the hukum of dogs as well. <laughs> the Malikis are the most lenient with dogs. 
I know it's, it makes the Hanafi and the Hanbali and the Shafi shudder. Oh, yeah, Allah. Ajib, I will tell you, most of us, either as Hanbalis like myself or Hanafis or Shafis, if we heard the rulings of the other school, the Maliki school, which was almost at the same time as Abu Hanifa, and in one sense earlier than Abu Hanifa, in one sense, we think, oh, what is this? It's because we have very limited knowledge, which is fine. But at least let's be respectful of other views. So the goal isn't Hanafi, the goal is Allah. The goal isn't Shafi, the goal is Allah. But the wasila, the means, has to be qualified mufti scholarship. And I will leave it to Sheikh Abdurrahman uh, to explain that part, uh, point. But I would like to just say, uh, as a muqaddimah to him, that even if the Sheikh... Uh, who is probably the most, I mean, I don't know everyone in the masjid, but between ourselves, Dr. Salim says he would like to think of himself as a, a good student of mine. The haki reality is, even when he first attended my circles, he was already an alim. And then within like kind of six months of like four, like 15 years that we've known each other, he already surpassed me anyway. And it's quite normal for the student to surpass the teacher. But he was never my student. We were always equals but he attended my classes. Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman is probably in fiqh between us and Allah knows best. He's probably above both, both of us by miles. So irrespective of what Sheikh Abdurrahman says in the madhab issue, I just want to, know, to let you know historically, the Muslim scholars differed on the question of does a layman and army have to follow one single madhab? One group of scholars said, yes, he does. From the time that the madhabs were codified, 5th Islamic century, up until now, he must. And if he doesn't, religion becomes a place thing. Today this is halal, tomorrow that's the same thing as haram. Tomorrow that is haram, the day after it will be halal. And you can see that with people, in particular Salafi, some Salafi brothers and sisters, who generally are not evil people, are not misintended, whatever, but sometimes... Oh, well, actually, there is a view of the madhab that says if you travel, uh, if you travel uh, for more than four days to a city like Glasgow, okay, more than four days, okay, 20 prayers, 21 prayers, then you can be a musafir. Okay, uh, so if you travel for four days or less, you can be a musafir. But if you travel for more than four days, you can't. And then they think they're going to Glasgow and they think, oh my gosh, you know, if I, I'm going to stay for six days. Right? Now I have to pray the full prayer. <laughs> Hanafis, they have 17 or 15 days. They have this like general, I'm a Hanafi today. <laughs> you can't do that with Allah's deen because one day it was, this is haram, and now it becomes halal the next day. According to what? Not according to detailed adilla proofs, according to my hawa. And one of the secrets, one of the asrar of ittiba. One of the secrets of following higher authority, not any authority like a tyrant or, or, or you know, unfit for purpose rulers, but guided awliya, ulama, ahlullah, in their, in their themselves following the Quran and hadith. The secret of ittiba is yakhrujul insan min muradi nafsihi ila muradi rabbih. A person leaving, following their own inclinations and what, the, what their own selves love, to following what Allah Jalla Jalaluhu loves. And that happens because, oh, but the Sunnah says this. But my, you know, I desire to do this. But inshallah, the Sunnah is better. So now I have made mujahada of the nafs. 
even though it's just sunnah. But at that higher stage, Allah purified my soul. So there were two opinions. One, you have to follow madhab. That became the dominant view of the jurist, and you can see the wisdom in that. The other view is you don't have to follow madhab. The original pattern was there was no madhab, but what you have to do is two things. You have to follow qualified uh, fatwas when you don't know, and you can't pick and choose according to your desire. Four days, I'm this, and no, but I'm going six days, I'll be Hanafi. No. And because many people couldn't follow these two rules of the second opinion, then the safer opinion, no doubt, is the first view. For what? Not for your ethics, not for your theology, your aqidah, not for this, not for that, just for the fiqh. And what is your fiqh? In practical terms, some rules of prayer, some rules of hajj, some rules of fasting, a few rules of zakat, a few rules of marriage, buying and selling. More or less, that's it. As regards to cryptocurrency, this, that, and the other, it's not really a Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki thing. It's become larger than that. So you'll find that, oh, this is not, but it's safety. It's safety. So like myself, who follows the second opinion, but practically knows it doesn't work in this age, in, or at least in this country, it doesn't work. And I can give you a thousand and one examples. So at least have common sense that my journey is to Allah and I need to do anything and everything possible to make that journey safe, sound and achievable. Because everything else in life, my brothers and sisters and elders, is a footnote. Everything else in my life is a footnote to this journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At-tahabbub ilallah bima yarda to become beloved to Allah by doing what pleases Him. When it comes to fiqh, it, the only way I know what pleases God is through these mujtahid imams and their schools of fiqh, which we call the four madhahib, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali. Radiallahu anhum ajma'een to all of their imams and their students. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless, guide, and protect their ulama of yesterday and today. Jazakumullah khayin for your uh, patience. May Allah bless the two mujahids uh, and tulab that we had. Uh, it's really lovely to see that. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifoon. Wassalamun ala al-mursaleen. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. The point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously, to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules. And at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind, you can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.